Hey folks, welcome to Narratives. Narratives is a podcast exploring the ways in which the world is better than in the past, the ways it is worse, and the paths towards a better, more definite vision of the future. I'm your host, Will Jarvis, and I want to thank you for taking the time out of your day to listen to this episode. I hope you enjoy it. You can find show notes, transcripts, and videos at narrativespodcast.com. Well, Quinn, how's it going, man? Pretty good, you? Good. Well, thanks uh, Thanks for hopping on again. Oh, thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's a nice kind of warm day here in uh, rainy Wake Forest. Good home base here. I wanted to get back together and talk to you about a topic we co- like we, we started to cover in a previous episode, and it was about declining social technologies. Yeah. I know this is a roundabout way. It's not exactly what we plan, but I, I, think, I think this plays yeah. in well. Um, and so we talked about how, you know, infant mortality, definitely heading south. But at the same time, we've got, it, it feels like we've got a lot of declining capability in a lot of like, social arenas yeah that's perhaps a really poor way to put it one of the big things we can think about is how often do people get married and form families yes and this has been like precipitously declining yes do you think that's a good metric for perhaps even yeah i think it's worth trying a bunch of different models to try get to the core thing so i'm yeah. not proposing this is the fundament like the root difference. Right. But I think a decent one, if you're just trying different ones out, is that we're good, we're doing good at stuff that's very legible. Baby deaths. Right. We are not doing so good at stuff that's fuzzier and harder to quantify. Interesting. I'm seeing that pattern. And so marriages seem like a good metric, but we should expect there to be fewer good metrics. Because if we had good metrics, I think we'd be doing a much better job of. Right. What What's something that's like fuzzy? Could fuzzy be something like community spirit, social trust to some extent? Um, because we don't just mean do you trust other people. We mean should you trust other people, and uh, that's hard to quantify. Yeah that that is that is hard to quantify. So like. We talked about, you and I, I think, have talked about the wallet studies where they drop wallets off yeah. in different parts of the world and see who, you know, how often do you get them returned with money and things like that. Yeah. Um, that seems like a good way to get try and get at that, right? Yeah. To some extent. I think so. Gotcha. And just anecdotally, I would say I have this feeling, at least where we live, that people are pretty good to strangers in general. Yes. Like, so I don't know if you've noticed this, but... Whenever I see someone break down by the side of the road, yeah. very often I'll see someone else unrelated stop yes. and try to help. This happened to my wife recently. You know, like she's driving you know, far out in eastern North Carolina mm-hmm. yes. you know, as a flat tire or something. If something was wrong with the car. And, um, you know, like someone just pulled up behind her. It's like, do you need help? You know, like, yes. like I'm happy to help and just gets out and like helps her put things together. So in, su- in some I sense. Saw, go ahead. I just uh, yesterday saw someone on Twitter saying. Uh, reiterating that he was waiting for a bus in the rain and a woman pulled up in her car and asked if he wanted to get in where it was warm because, yeah. you know, it was raining. And, yeah. And the bus was actually behind her, so she was holding it out. But he was <laughs> saying he just, and he said, I love this town. Yeah. No, that's a really good metric. And even, like, if you're able to talk to people. Yeah. 
um like i think in line in the grocery store you know like that's a really good sign just to be able to talk about like whatever or or be generally friendly to people you have no yeah um relation to you know you don't have a baseline expectation that they'll hurt you right that helps a lot that i think that's really positive yeah so at least locally things are in some sense okay yeah or they still work okay and and more so than in other parts of the world i feel like yeah but that could be like very well localized to our area now um marriage get back to marriage like this we're jumping around a little bit but I, i think we can tie it back together really well um marriage rates so the book we actually started talking about is called coming apart yeah and the thesis and thesis it's called coming apart the state of white america from 1960 to 2010 yeah and the author focuses on white america to kind of just give us a subsection yeah you know, it's a big demographic um and it gives us some idea of like how things have changed over time and uh, he says that People always sort of try to make this stuff about race. Yeah. Um, so just focusing on white America makes that very, very difficult. If he's going to talk about uh, an underclass forming um, and he's just talking about white people, people can't go. But yes, that's Jim Crow. Right. Exactly. We're talking about Jim Crow. Right, 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 right. So you can't you can't subsect it by in some other way. Yeah. Other than it, it has to be class. Yeah. To some extent. Um, that's super interesting. I just, I would call it he's controlling for a confounder. Right. He's controlling for a confounder in this case. Um, So this is the book. There's kind of this great divergence between, um, what would he call it? Like, uh, I guess between, you know, upper class. Yes. And then lower class. Yes. Smart college educated people who tend to be affluent. But right. it's partly social class. So money is a very incomplete metric of it. Gotcha. So we could think of like a PhD student in sociology at Duke probably does not have a lot of money. Yep. You know, probably makes 20, 30K a year or something like yes. that. But they are class, in terms yep. of class. In particular, I think that a lot of people in the upper class trade off money against other things they want more. So I would definitely put at least some journalists in the upper class. And they gotcha. don't get paid very well uh, in money, but they get paid pretty well in influence. And then... In status or, or yeah. status or something like that. Status too, yeah. Uh, since that their work is meaningful. The ability right. to exercise power. Yeah. Yeah. Uh. So I think um, just that's another reason why my doesn't map it completely. Right. Uh, Bertrand Russell um, has a really good essay where he distinguishes, he's talking about motivations, and he distinguishes the love of glory from the love of power. And he says, he's writing in 1952, I think, he says, in America, movie stars have glory. And the House Un-American Activities Committee has power, but no glory. (laughs) And he says that actually you see this pretty common historical figure who has no glory whatsoever, uh, no status whatsoever, goes about in racks, but um, 
controls everything, sort of a power behind the throne figure. And he yeah. cites various examples. And I have I've run into that places beside Bertrand Russell, so I think it's a thing. To the extent that money is part of a total compensation package, you should expect to see people using it as a dump stat sometimes to maximize other stuff. Gotcha. Interesting. So do you mean something where like, what do you mean by that? What's a dump stat? Sorry. Oh, um, in certain games, uh, I think Dungeons and Dragons may be yeah. definitely a bunch of clones of it. Uh, you have a certain number of points to the stink to distribute between attributes. Gotcha. So strength is an attribute. Intelligence is an attribute. You can take points from strength and put them into intelligence, which will make you smarter but physically gotcha. weaker. Scott Alexander has a pretty amusing um, retelling of the Greek myths where he uses this logic explicitly to explain why uh, Hercules is incredibly stupid because he's also the strongest man in the world. So he's put all his points into Nice. Uh, which is why I think of when I think of the. So when people are designing um, characters to play the games, a lot of the times they'll decide that a particular stat just doesn't matter much. Gotcha. They might uh, not put any points into charisma because I'm just going to bash people over the head. Right, right. They call that a, um, a dump stat, a stat where you don't care how low it is so you can distribute the points to your other attributes. Gotcha. So if you were maximizing for influence, um, you might end up with relatively little money because anytime you have a chance to trade money for more influence, um, you'd take it. Gotcha. And, and probably there's something where like, you know, each profession or job has like some trade off between all these different factors. Yeah. And you try and like, and each person's trying to optimize on it. So maybe if you get more status, you get less money or something like that. And Yes. Gotcha. Interesting. One of my pet projects is, I want to do when I'm 70 is write this big sociology of American class. I would be neat. You know, I would read. Yeah, I think it'd be interesting, right? Like yeah. go, you go live with all kinds, like all kinds of different people, huh. um, and like try and like ferret these things out. Like Paul Fossil wrote some kind, yeah. fairly tongue in cheek, which I wish he was actually more literal all the yeah. time. I think it'd be. I read Scott's better. review, which. Scott's reviews tend to quote big sections of the original text, so yeah. I end up feeling like I've read Fossil. Yeah, it's good. It's yeah. funny. It's really entertaining. So this divergence between kind of upper class whites and I hate to say lower class. It makes, it makes yeah. things sound bad. I uh, wish I had some other term. Yeah, I know. Um, but lower class, class whites, shall yes. we say. Um, and, and there is this like, it's almost taboo to talk about class in yes. the US, right? Like, so, you know, there's no such thing as class. It's awkward. Yeah. And people redirect it into discussions about money. Right. And then we start talking, exactly. Like it gets auto-translated. Right, right, right. All the time. Huh. Like there's no such thing. Um, and it's funny because I think actually one of the things I got from the book was like, I think this was fairly, it was somewhat true that there was very little class in yes. 1960. Among like, you know, too. whites in America. Uh, lots of uh, mobility. I noticed that. And uh Lots of people not identifying with a particular class. And he makes the point that um, they might be rationally expecting to change classes because that happened a lot more often back then. Right. The example I like to give is, uh, and he gives in the book, is in 1960, Maytag, you know, this yeah. huge American company that makes still makes washing machines, based in some small town in Iowa. Yeah. And uh, the neighborhood where the CEO and chairman, founder of Maytag lived, 
uh, you know, his house was only like 1.5 times the median house in the town. Yeah. You know, and like, and all kinds of people lived in the neighborhood. Yeah. And that is somewhat unthinkable today yeah. to think a, look, so what's a great American company, new great American company, you know, like Apple, Apple, you know, yeah. can you imagine Tim Cook living with, you know, nah. in a house that's 1.5 times the median? Well, I, it's. He would get a reputation for being an eccentric. Yes. We would think it was very weird. Yeah. He, he wouldn't, he, you know, he'd be living in like, uh, you know, Cary in one of these big, big neighborhoods, you know, not, yeah. not with everyone else. Um, just an example for North Carolina. But so things have gotten very different now, right? Like, yeah. like e- even in that example, the CEO of Maytag now, you know, he lives in Des Moines yes. in a really, in Iowa in a really rich suburb and then like takes his private jet down to the, you know, <laughs> yeah. headquarters every day or something like that. And at, so I, I guess my question is, uh, and maybe we haven't paid this divergence super well yet. And maybe we should do that first. Yeah. Um, but why did things diverge like this, right? Like between, you know, there used to be things were really flat, like fairly yes. flat. Well, I've read a few different uh, people. I mean, Murray now, but also Paul Graham. And I read Zvi's review and analysis of Tyler Cowan's complacent class, which it seems it's like it's book. talking about the same stuff. Yeah. Um. Graham thinks that things were artificially pushed close together, largely because of World War II. Um, that World War II put us on a war footing, which is essentially socialist, command and control, top down. Right. And that we inherited these huge corporations that um, didn't really compete with each other and didn't really have to worry too much about going out of business. Gotcha. This sort of fake economy. Uh, I think he calls it the Duplo economy there. Oh, interesting. And that we have all these weird social um, mores, I guess, in those that you recognize from the military, like seniority being really important. Yeah. And like working the same place for your whole life. Yeah. And not trying to get market price for your labor because you're going to be there. Uh, that all makes sense in a, you know, military structure yeah um, and it's just weird in a market structure right and I, I guess eventually that uh stopped working and we decompressed yeah um which you know good good parts and bad parts to that definitely some it's worth focusing on the bad parts i think right well, um, well on the on the positive side yeah. what have we gotten we've gotten like consumer goods are a lot cheaper yeah. Generally, like TVs. Yes. A lot cheaper. Consumer goods are cheaper. Um, there's the whole uh, information technology. Yeah. Uh, it's sort of, it's a little hard to untangle because it's also a cause. But, you know, when I was a teenager. I didn't, there was this guy I watched movies with every so often. And I had to be careful not to bring up his religion or he'd get mad. Um, I basically, I didn't have friends. Uh, I was in a, world that wasn't really very connected and so um well, this is pretty this is fairly it was like coinciding with consumer internet coming online yeah. i guess yeah uh 2000s gotcha and partly i was less uh functional i'm autism spectrum and i had learned less about uh you know how to relate to other people but also uh i noticed it reading murray's book he's talking about smart isolated people who would find ways to connect with the normal people in the football team 
uh, you know, if you're the nerd who wants to read physics books, but there aren't any other nerds who want to read physics books, then you will find ways to relate to the non-physics reading people. Right. You're kind of and, jammed into to fitting in. And sometimes it just doesn't work. I mean, I was incredibly depressed as a teenager. I'm not totally sure about the etiquette of bringing that up. And I could be an outlier, but I think a lot... There are a lot of desperately depressed teenagers who are very alone. And with the internet, now they can meet other people who share their interests and connect right. with them. And it's that's definitely causing some problems, and it's worth focusing on those problems. Right. But I noticed that Murray's attitude is basically, well, they would get over themselves and learn to relate to the normal people. Right. And, you know, I was... I spent a lot of time thinking about suicide. I wasn't content. I wasn't happy. I knew I wasn't happy. Uh, I realize people say, I can't do that sometimes when they mean, I don't want to do that. But sometimes you literally can't do it. It's true. It's very true. That is, that's at least one, it's one very salient reason why I tend to skew libertarian, is safety valves. The people who right. desperately exactly. need the thing. Yes. So, you know, we um California banned plastic straws a while ago. Right. And I told my parents that uh it would be vastly better if they imposed like a hundred dollar per straw fine. Yeah. Because then if there's someone who really needs the straws for some reason we haven't anticipated because you can't anticipate, you can't anticipate everything, everything. You have a safety valve. Yeah. And if you're right that nobody values a plastic straw at a hundred dollars, then uh it's the same as the ban. Right. And you can if people do buy the straws, you can use that to clean up and do net right. good with the environment. Exactly. Really smart way to do it. Yeah. Um, this reminds me of, so this is one thing in the book, this is the way I think things are a lot better. And perhaps this, yeah. this is something you're getting at is like, in 1960, on any given Thursday, a uh. third of the population was watching the same TV show. Yes. Like at the same time, like yes. holy mackerel, can you imagine? Uh. Um, and like, there's a lot of things like what could go on TV was very restricted. Yeah. Norms were much more restrictive. Like we talk about like cancel culture today, but you know, like if you're, you were gay, you could not be publicly gay and be in like any kind of position of of power or anything like that. Um, And, and like you said, you know, like if you, if you grew up in a small town, you were, there there is no safety valve. Like you, you have to make friends with the football team or, you know, like you can't connect with other people that, you know, let's say, you know, you have X interest. That's not yeah. served by being in a bit small town. Like, I don't know, like, you know, being like, um, you know, reading Scott's blog, yeah. you know, like there would be no one else. Yeah. You know, I mean, how many people in the triangle read Scott's blog? When at least come to the meetup, there's probably like yeah. 10 people. Yep. You know, factor that maybe there's a hundred that read it total, right? Like, yeah. I don't know. I don't know about you. I use the blog to filter for people who have ineffable personal qualities that I'm going to along with uh and some effable physical qualities i mean yeah there's decoupling there's right. uh being interested in abstract ideas yes yeah. trying to accurately make predictions and noticing when you're wrong right. those are all mental habits that i've managed to f but there's some remaining ineffability about it <laughs> right so i guess there is like a hard like 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 there there are trade there are real trade-offs uh, i think it I guess what I was trying to 
say and doing a bad job of is that it depends on who's in what bucket. Uh, Murray, it, it reads like he's treating it as it's inconvenient that the nerds have to connect with the football team. Um, I'm very well aware that there exist nerds who simply will not be able to connect with the football team. Gotcha. And if there are lots and lots of nerds like that, then that matters a lot. If they're extremely rare outliers, um, then it's almost, it's distracting to bring you out because, you know, somebody gets struck by lightning twice. Gotcha. Gotcha. So the goodness or badness depends on what funges against what, I guess. Right. Is it something like where there's some people that can't like it, like are unable to like fit into the mold, you know, connect with like whatever, like just go along with it. And if you don't have any way that they can escape, it's just it just doesn't work. It's not like it's not like always this thing where you could just figure it out. Yeah. I found a book by Bertrand Russell when I was 16, and I read and I read lots of his R essays. He had that quality. I related yeah. to him. And I learned later that he'd spent his teenage years the same way I had, utterly miserable and lonely and thinking a lot about, he says, that he used to go down and watch the sunset and think about committing suicide, but he didn't because he wanted to know more mathematics. Um Definitely not. I'm never endorsing everything anyone says, and that goes for him too, but he had that. So that was salient for me. And Scott mentions in a blog post that he got into philosophy when he bought a book by Bertrand Russell when he was 16. Oh, that's awesome. So there is a cluster here. Yeah, absolutely. But on the other hand, the whole, sometimes it's good for you to connect with the football team. Murray definitely, I mean, he hasn't, argument that it impels you to do things you might not do yourself that you'll be better off having done. Um, for me, I say that doesn't happen because it didn't happen in my case or treat the cases where it does happen as noise because it didn't happen in my case would be, you know, epistemically really fucking questionable. <laughs> um, definitely don't want to do that. Yeah, I've got a lot of thoughts here. I'm, I'm trying to think what what's best. So we've had this, uh, you know, I think the football team is a good example. Yeah. Because uh, I, I think it, it illustrates something real. Um, you know, so it seems like in 1960, the nerds stuck around. Yeah. Um, they felt responsible yeah. to the football team. And, you know, it's like Maytag, you know, you live in the neighborhood, you take care of everybody. It seems like now, and perhaps there wasn't, capability to do this so this is this matters or perhaps things have gotten more libertarian in some sense or so i i don't know i don't know um i'm hand waving right now Uh, but i get the feeling like there's this ability to exit we're going to exit to the big metropoles um we're going to leave every man for himself yes we're going to do a lot better and this plays out in the numbers you know the upper class whites make a lot more money yeah you know they stay married yeah. They um they have all these like very socially conservative norms around yeah. child rearing, um, which they don't imprint on the football team, so to speak. Yeah. Um and people kind of are left behind. Yes. And it is much better for the upper class, but I think it is probably much worse. Yeah. In this great divergence. Yep. There's the brain drain effects and there's the lack of um 
I guess, intermediate role models. Uh, yeah. People who are sort of like you, but different enough that you can learn from them and modulate your behavior towards what they're doing. Right. I, and I think this in the, uh, of this in the context of Gerard, where like, you know, if like, who is the, who are you imitating? Yeah. You know, who do you wish to be? And if you're imitating someone who's like, you know, say the CEO of Maytag, you know, he's responsible, yeah. lives in the neighborhood. He takes care of other people. He stays married to his wife. You know, he like does all these, you know, raises his children you know, and um, he's responsible to the community. Um, maybe you try and live up to that. But if that yeah. person's gone. Yeah. Like, and not there. Consciously. And I mean, imitative instinct goes really deep. Yeah. This may be just a funny story. Right. association. Yeah. But definitely goes to George and Mimesis. I was having this problem when I was in college where the spell checker on my home computer would show no problems. But I didn't have a printer at the time, so I would email it to the school's computers and print it off there. Their spell checker would show a bunch of problems. And I eventually figured out that what was happening was that I sometimes slipped into using British spellings. And then I figured out that when I was doing that, my inner voice was imitating Bertrand Russell. Oh, that's awesome. I didn't even register that I was, but the, in almost all cases, a couple of times, I, right. I think there was one point where I said, this is a very peculiar argument, and then <laughs> went into taking it apart. And <laughs> that's there was awesome. A, but I totally hadn't, you know, I wasn't even thinking... I, I wasn't thinking I'm imitating Bertrand Russell. It was right. just a tone of argument I picked up. And Isn't that awesome? Yeah, I, I do think, you know, like, man, I think we very rarely have original ideas. I think a lot of what we do, uh, just copy our role models. I think a lot of it is, can I float a, I'm not sure if it's a counter argument or a refactoring. Oh, absolutely. Um, we don't have original ideas sui generis. We remix stuff. That's okay, where I Original ideas come from. You can't uh, create a new idea out of nothing. But we can't help but remix stuff because we're not perfect imitators. Ah, so it's it's actually like some. So you think it's a? Uh, ooh, I find this super appealing. It's some like evolutionary argument, yeah. right? So you have like some some kind of like a mutation yeah. or something when you try to copy. I've been. Then, listening to a lot of J.J. Kale lately, the um, guitar player. Oh, yeah. And he is a, his guitar tone is really, it's noticeable. It's gorgeous. I really like it. Yeah. And I was reading about how he got that. Yeah. And he was trying to imitate Eric Clapton, maybe. Gotcha. <laughs> but he couldn't figure out how Eric Clapton was doing it. So he ended up doing this whole separate thing. Right. And that's how we get that awesome guitar tone. Also, um. Black Sabbath, you know, invented that loosely strung, the guitar tone there sounds really, really different. Yeah. And the way they did that was the guitarist lost part of his hand in an industrial accident, and that was the only way he could play. <laughs> it was completely accidental. And you hear it in everything in metal after that point. Right. So mutation. It's mutation. This this may be just like I don't know, it's trying me trying my subconscious trying to signal something. It's okay. And I do think this is I think you're absolutely right. This happens a lot. But it almost sounds like it it denies human agency. Ah, uh, yeah. I don't know exactly where I'm going with this. Do you think 
there is any place for human agency in this kind of thing? Or is it just like something, you know, I, I don't know. I think it depends on the cartoonist and um, media figure. Scott uh, Adams yeah. uh, wrote a book on systems versus goals, which I meant to read because the basic idea did oh, sound. Where he basically said um, that when you... I didn't read it, so I'm my brain is filling it in. Yeah. But what my brain fills in is that if you have a very particular picture of the way you want the world to look and you go chasing after that, you'll almost always fail because there are loads of ways to be wrong, uh, to get that picture wrong. But if you have a sort of general direction and a bunch of heuristics, you can pray consistently steer the future into a region higher in your preference ordering. Gotcha. So we have agency and that we can make the world a better place. But the more precise our goals become, um, the more likely, the more helpless we are to achieve them just as they are specified. Interesting. So the more specific we get, the harder it is. Yeah. Hmm. Sort of like um, the conjunction rule of probability. The more details you add, the more... Uh, chances you have to be wrong. Right, absolutely. The more constraints you add, uh, the higher the probability that you'll fail to satisfy some of them. But there are also unexpectedly good things, things that rank high in our preference ordering that we maybe didn't anticipate. Yeah. Tell me if this is an example or not an example. We've got two thoughts. So PayPal. Yeah. PayPal. So Peter Thiel, PayPal yeah. Mafia, they go through, they want to create like an entire new currency like digital yeah. currency like bitcoin that's what they you know like they're like the fed's bad like you know if, yeah. uh, like we love rothbard like at time like torch the fed um i actually don't know rothbard's stance on the fed though i'm assuming he didn't like it um and we're gonna uh create this new currency and um they didn't quite accomplish that but they end up creating this like you know very valuable tech company yeah does that kind of fit into your systems goals? Like, yeah, I think so. Or, um, well, sort of dual examples, except that I suspect they're in some sense the same example. Yeah. Um, in Elizabeth Yatowski's fictional story, Harry Potter and the Methods of Rationality. Excellent plug here. The character. It's a very good story. It's a great story. Like Harry Potter, you you got to check this out. Uh, the character of Quirrell tells us that when he was younger he wanted to be a dark lord and he eventually gave up on it but that if he could go back in time and stop himself from trying uh, he wouldn't do that because it caused him to do lots of research that was otherwise useful and make himself stronger and so he was able to reorient that and nice. Yudkowsky, uh had a bunch of ideas about super intelligence that he ended up thinking were totally wrong and I think we're, I'm just going to say we're totally wrong. That it would be good by default. That we needed to create as quickly as possible. Yeah. Um, and that impelled him to do lots of research and study cognitive science and biases. Yeah. And, which ended up being very, very useful. Right. So there are some courses of actions where if they turn out to be mistaken, um, you'll probably get a lot of fringe benefits out of them. And Interesting. Probably shouldn't even say fringe benefits. Maybe the capital you're going to desperately need for other stuff. Right. And then there are courses of action where if they fail, you're kind of screwed. Uh, I've been – my friend Danny uh, 
is sort of a left-wing radical. Oh, cool. Or at least is socially a left-wing radical. And I've been having this argument, half argument with him a lot, um, just in that if you burn the system to the ground and you're wrong that that creates a better world, yeah. you are totally screwed. Right. So you need to build the better world first. And yeah. he kind of gets that, but... Not quite. Or he's not emphasizing it as much as I think he should. I mean, I shouldn't frame it so that I'm automatically right here. Right. Yeah. But it's crucial to think what will happen if you turn out to be badly wrong. Right. And take steps to mitigate that. Um, and it's possible to misread that because in general the way you avoid being blamed for things in our society is inaction, not doing things. And so if you're, people have this association that humility means not doing things because you're not sure it's the right thing to do. Yeah. But not doing things is also a choice, and sometimes it's exactly the wrong thing to do. <laughs> That's right. Yes, it very much is. So actual, I'd call humility uh, as opposed to modesty. Right. Uh, is both less easy than that and less passive coded. Got it. I got the humility modesty distinction from Yudkowsky. Um, if you hear someone you respect a lot is saying something that sounds clearly wrong, the modest thing to do is not to say anything about it because who are you? I think you could know better than them. Right. And usually the high humility course of action is to say so very loudly so you can be corrected, assuming you're wrong. Yeah. And you shouldn't necessarily assume that. Right. It's useful having a uh, fact pattern where they give diametrically opposite answers. It lets you pull them apart pretty easily. Definitely. And get somewhere. Yeah. So Murray is saying, I think he's right, we're seeing this bifurcation. Yeah. Um, which kind of sucks for people on the bad end of the bifurcation. Yeah. But it's pretty good for the people at top. Yeah. At least in the short term. Uh, probably in the long term, too. Uh, I went to college for a few years, and it wasn't at all what I thought it was. And when I talked to older people, um, what I thought it was going to be. It seems like that's sort of a recent development. So what were your expectations going in? Like honest intellectual debate? and like Yeah, a lot more like the rationalist community. Right. Um, they were really in favor of diversity, which... I kind of the reason you want diversity is so you have people with different views coming together and testing each other's theories. And right. I mean, I knew they didn't just mean ideological diversity, but right. I assumed they wanted the other kinds as proxies for ideological. Right. Uh, and no. Uh, and if I'm right, that's gotten worse. And that. See, I want to be very careful of the narrative that um, in the long run, uh, it's bad for the upper class people too. Yeah. I'm just pointing out downsides that right. you do get echo chambers and yeah. the echo chambers make it more difficult to think and that makes it more difficult to make decisions. And that is potentially a huge problem. Yeah. Yeah. Just, just, on, the, just on the intellectual side, right? Yeah. Um, and I think two thoughts here i think your notion about 
you know, college preps and universities changing over time where, where they were, they were much more truth seeking, things like that. Like, so the evidence I have that this, this perhaps is true is that like the $20 bill on the sidewalk that there even is like this community of people, like the, the quote unquote rationalist community. Yes. Like even exists. Yeah. The perhaps is evidence that like, you know, there's like, well, there's these academic, essentially academic people outside of academia, like in a really robust way. Yes. Um, is evidence to me that. Yeah, it does. Things there, are weird. There was this discussion on less wrong. Uh, I was reading up between people. I think it, I was reading the transcript and it was a voice chat. And they were talking about a bunch of stuff. But one thing they were talking about was why academic decision theories have not. I'm just going to go ahead and adopt my perspective because it's easier than the yeah. disclaimers. Um, have not got as far as Eliezer Yudkowsky has got. Right. I think uh, his model actually is progress. And yeah. so why do we have you know, decades of people working on this and no one in academia getting that far? I'm not sure his model is right, but it's closer to right than the academically. Right. Um, and you could kind of tell that every time the conversation circled back to that, he got sort of impatient. And eventually yeah. he said that asking why academia didn't solve timeless issues decision theory is sort of like asking why J.C. Penney didn't solve timeless decision theory. But there was a point in the past where their incentives were aligned in a way that would produce results like that. Yeah. But we aren't in that world now, and we haven't been for a long time. Right. And we shouldn't be misled by the, you know, big red layers on the side of the thing saying this is about truth-seeking. And I think he put it less inflammatorily than truth-seeking, that very last bit. Right. Um. And Scott said recently that, uh, you know, in 2014, this is very close to an exact quote. Um, in 2014, if you and your friends were being the experts, that was awesome and you should celebrate. And in 2021, if you and your friends are being the experts, that's just getting kind of sad now. Are the experts okay? Do they need help? And, you know, he's joking. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's like, what is going on? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think partly um, simulacra levels. That was the first, kind of the first two we did. Uh, I helped yeah. interview V, and then you and I talked about that. That was a lot I of fun. I think that's a big piece of it. Um, it wouldn't be happening on its own, but um, so it's not the root of the problem. And I'm not sure that I have a good enough model. It could be several things that we have lumped together as one thing. Right. Um, partly it's good harding that um, we're getting very good optimizing for the measures, uh, getting very good optimizing for the legible targets. And that's increasing the gap between what we're optimizing for and what we really want. So, and you're. Goodhart's law, where you know, when yeah. you set something as a measure, it ceases becoming, ceases to be. Yeah. When a measure becomes a target, it ceases to be a good measure. And when I explain this to my parents, I talk about the Soviets paying factories for how many shoes they put out and the factories releasing very tiny shoes, or <laughs> paying truck factories for how many tons of machineries they put out, and right. suddenly you get very, very heavy trucks. Right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, in my experience, there's, it's a frustrating thing to talk about because people always feel like if they just add one more sentence to it, 
they will have specified what they want. We right. just have to say no heavy trucks. Okay, right. not per shoe. Up. Yeah. They keep thinking that it's just one more sentence away, and then you poke holes in that, and right. they add another sentence, and you poke holes yeah. in that. And it's frustrating because a lot of the times the argument ends with them feeling like, well, obviously smart people can work this one out. Yeah. And I mean, I oftentimes think that in theory it's possible, but in practice it's very unlikely. Right. Uh, I call that a um, Lewis argument. The philosopher Daniel Lewis once said uh, in exasperation, um, well, I cannot refute an incredulous stare. And the Lewis argument is a uh, argument where people don't actually have any counter arguments at the end of it, but they still feel like you're wrong. And, you know, it's frustrating because that instinct could be, you don't want to disregard it out of hand. Right. But I do prefer things I can argue with. Right. I think it's, yeah, I think it's more productive. So the long term. Yeah. Up class. You know, do you know what I see? What? I see it pretty vividly with nothing changing. It's something like South Africa at this point, mm. you know, where if you've done well, you know, you get this house with this, you know, barbed wire, electric fence, you know, bars on the windows, you hire private security. Mm. You just, you know, it's all this like just super insulated, you know. No social trust. No, absolutely no social trust. And I just don't see, you know, like how do you get out of it? Yeah. I wish I knew more history. Trust comes from somewhere. Scott has that post on niceness, community, and civilization, and trust networks spontaneously forming. And the Americans and the Germans, or maybe the British and the Germans in World War One, getting out of the trenches on Christmas. So there is a trick to it, maybe a lot of tricks to it, but I, well, I wish I knew what they were. Right. Um, curiosity? I mean, this might just be vague moralizing, but I feel like I've had, I'm going to discard the false humility. I think I'm in the top 10 percentage points for people who've had productive dialogues with people who are on the opposite side politically for just about any side you can specify, any nice. issue you can specify. And I didn't get there by thinking assuming it's an accomplishment to be there, which I am going, by thinking that I ought to. Yeah. Or that it would be virtuous. I got there because I was curious. Yeah. Uh, a lot of the times I was as curious about people's psychology. I mean, it's not something you would say of their face, but you're wondering, okay, how does this person get that badly wrong? Right. But it's still curiosity, so you still want to hear from them. So if you don't say exactly that and you signal friendliness and openness, they will try to explain to you and you'll learn things. And I think Nietzsche said the best way to loving your enemies is to learn from them because it makes you grateful to them, which nice. does help. Yeah. But I don't think that scales. Right. And it also doesn't seem like it's... It's correlated with having more smart people. Yeah. But it's not, definitely not the only thing. Yes. I mean, there's plenty of places, you know, Singapore, like Singapore's maybe not a great example, but, you know, China or like places that have plenty of smart people that are unable to. Partly it's the technology. Going back to Graham, um, Graham says technology is a lever that magnifies human action, but also human capability. 
technology increases the returns to intelligence. And social technology, you know, kind of fits in there. Having the structures in place that let you, um, that let you turn the intelligence into um, results. Right. And norms, which, I mean, probably falls under social technology. But, uh, well, cowboys, you know, having a culture where um, being kind of a maverick and considering unusual ideas and taking action when it seems like action is necessary and no one else is doing it. In some cultures, that's a good thing. And in some cultures, it's not. Right. Um, I guess it would be like... 12, 14 years ago now, so it's probably out of date. But um, I remember Yudkowsky saying that uh, the reason we didn't see more uh, superpoweredness coming out of Asia was that they have this cultural norm that the nail that sticks up is the one that gets hammered down. Right. And that, I, I'm sort of filling this in, that may be. That does have benefits. It lets you run normal society really well, but yeah. it limits your ability to access outliers. Um, Scott's recent post on the CDC, uh, one of his, uh, uh, sorry, on the FDA, Freudian slip there. <laughs> one of his arguments was um, that a disproportionate amount of the value from approving things is a handful of extremely high-value innovations. And so if your screening process uh, stops those uh, anti-HIV uh, drugs and uh, yeah. COVID vaccines, then even if it works very well in most cases, it's still massively net negative. Right. Well, and most, and especially thinking like, you know, most drugs... Uh, you know, there are very few drugs that provide most of the benefit to humanity. You yeah. know, it's like antibiotics, like penicillin, and it's some huge percentage. And then each, you know, everything else down behind that, right? Like, yes. um, and so if you, you, you lop one off, that's really important. It could be half, yeah. 80% of like the entire benefit to humanity. Yeah, exactly. And it's so hard to reason about those. I remember Paul Graham saying how, um, he was calling what he did with Y Combinator black swan farming. That Oh, interesting. Um, yeah, he was saying how the vast majority of his return is on those very rare investments that pay disproportionately well. And right. so that requires him to do lots of counterintuitive things. And he said that sometimes he doesn't do the counterintuitive things that he can't bring himself to. Um, Benjamin Hoffman criticized him a lot for that. Uh, I, and may have had a good point, but um, I'm going to sail past that. That um, If you have a business in front of you that is probably going to be profitable, and another one that's almost certainly not going to be, but might be insanely, incredibly profitable, then it's weird to fund the second business, knowing that you're almost certainly going to regret. Say it again. So, so if you, you're talking about fun, you. You fund the one uh, with the, the incredibly high upside. The business model he was describing was almost all of the value is in outliers. Oh, and right, almost right. all of the outliers are very low probability. Right. And so you take actions that you think will be futile, almost certainly. Right. Because they might not be. Right. And that requires you to pass up actions that you think 
think we'd probably be useful to some degree. Right. But um, have a lower chance of being insanely, incredibly useful. Gotcha. So in other words, like if you're Paul Graham, your Y Combinator, you want to, or, you know, you venture capital. Yeah. You want to fund Airbnb. And the problem with funding Airbnb is the it's obvious that no one wants to sleep in an air mattress in someone else's living room. It's a stupid idea. Okay. And he it's says funny. that consistently um, the really big ones seemed like stupid ideas. Right. They seemed lame. It wasn't just that nobody saw the value. It was that they were dumb looking. And that dumbness kept people from seeing the value. Right. Well, it, it, yeah, like it, it, it's interesting. So I started doing some angel scouting for um, Sahil. He's a kind of, a, he started Gumroad. He's a big uh, kind of like entrepreneur, VC, angel investor. Uh, and it's interesting, you know, in hearing from him, it's like, Yudkowsky calls this the, it's like the the red hair problem or something is an inadequate equilibria. I might be, I'm saying it's wrong, but you know, if like you, you if no one funds entrepreneurs with red hair, yeah. Um, and and you find this really good deal. Like this, this is the next yeah. Airbnb. This is the Airbnb. They they're gonna be able to solve like the liquidity problem. People are actually gonna like and that liquidity problem for like spaces for these fake hotel rooms in people's houses. And people are actually gonna sleep on an air mattress in people's house, yeah. strangers' houses. Um, then uh, you you know, even if you fund them, they'll never be able to get a Series B or C. Because no one else funds red-haired entrepreneurs. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, I see it. I wish I remembered. I thought I had that one just about memorized. Yeah. Zvi has a series of essays that make a similar point. I can use that. Um, but if you think of which one it is, uh, send it to me. It, and it might not have been inadequate equilibrium. It might have been uh, one, oh. of, one of For series. a number of months, uh Probably a year and a half after I thought I had read everything Yudkowsky had written, I'd keep finding other essays that just weren't, you know, compiled into the core sequences. Right. So um, if you do stumble across it, I might not have read that one, and well, I'd do. like to. Absolutely. Um, I do tend to find the people I like and then go very deep on them. That's wise. Uh, it's, it, it's almost a black swan thing, right, where I think, yeah. you know, you're looking for the outliers of... Insight. I think it's how my brain works to a large degree. Like I figured out, it was really funny um, when I was a kid, uh, a teenager. Um, I mean, there were a lot of jokes about that. I had great difficulty reading strangers' body language, and my parents thought I was psychic because I could read theirs very well. Very, very, very well. And I eventually figured out that it's a sensitivity versus specificity trade-off. Gotcha. That I had memorized all of their micro-expressions perfectly. Right. And my brain couldn't generalize that to other people's non-micro-expressions. Nice. But if you have a very precise picture of that exact frown in your head, yeah. um, the precision of that picture itself keeps you from uh, abstracting it into something you can recognize uh, on someone else's face. Nice. So I think to some extent I'm just sort of wired to um, model a few people in great, great depth. And it sort of fits my um, where I tend to land on the I don't intuitively grok patriotism. 
I don't have a deep concern for my fellow countrymen. Uh, I'm not more altruistic, so it's not that I care more about foreigners. It's like um, all of the sort of second-order loyalty goes into the very specific people that I'm focused on. Gotcha. And that's less true than it used to be because rationalist community. But, right. A little bit broader. Yeah. That was a tangent, but... No, that's good. That actually that also reminds me, it's like, uh, you know, I feel like uh, just about everybody in the rationalist community, you know, pretty utilitarian, right? Like, Yeah. I think a lot of them are... I've thought about this. I mean, a lot of them aren't utilitarian, but they bite bullets that usually only utilitarians bite. They're definitely in that cluster. But I used to get frustrated with people accuse David Friedman of being a utilitarian, and he's literally written an essay called Why I Am Not a Utilitarian. They accuse Scott of being a utilitarian. He's wrote that whole series of essays about where he's starting to have doubts about utilitarianism, and then uh, he amends his moral system and ends up with what he calls contractarianism, which is my philosophy professor I liked at school had not heard that word before, and he seems to have made it up. Um, So I think, I mean, they're definitely more utilitarians than most movements, but I also think there are a lot of people who are utilitarian adjacent in some sense. That's right. But have also explained in great detail why they're not exactly utilitarians. Right. Um, It's interesting. Uh, Anyway, you were going somewhere with that. I'm sorry. Oh, no, no, no. I want you to keep expanding that, but it's um, just in the context of the football team. Yeah. No, (laughs) I think this is a great, it's a great metaphor. So in the context of the football team, I think, uh, you know, most of the football team are, um, would be much more partial to like some kind of virtue ethics or something yeah. like that. Um, whereas I think per, perhaps the smarter people are more utilitarian in general. Reading Bertrand Russell as a teenager, uh, he was a utilitarian and I wasn't. Uh, and I decided he, I thought he was biased in favor of it because it enables analysis. If, uh, uh, yes, as opposed it, it to does. deontology. Right. Sometimes it's useful to say things without necessarily endorsing them. Yeah. I mean, I'm tempted to say, I think the dominant ethical stance in the rationalist community is virtue ethicist who believes that it is virtuous to approximate utilitarianism. But the uh, mental processes are very, that a good person would do this. Right. Um, and Definitely. so you get behavior that looks utilitarian, but the underlying uh, mental schema is very uh, virtue ethic. Yeah, I think I think you're. I think that's very wise way to put it. Thank you. Yeah. Yudkowsky once tweeted, "Let me get this right. Um, the rules say we have to use utilitarianism, <laughs> but all the good people are." deontologists and virtue ethics is what actually works. I love that. Yeah. I love that. That's awesome. I also like Stephen Kay said something about deontology, virtue ethics, and consequentialism being analogous to Virtue ethics was nouns, and consequentialism was verbs. And I think deontology, what was it, adjectives? 
I could, yeah, I could definitely see that. I do see them sometimes as different elements that come together to enact the mental schema we actually use. I have to try hard to avoid um, teleological language. Right. Different. It would be wrong to say different uh, elements that we use in order to because um, the only reason we think that's a goal is because it's the goal that we have. Right. But um, I do see them as, to a large extent, complementary in practice and not in theory, which is fun. Yeah, that's that's wise, right? So it's a good point. So like we use all these different tools in our day to day lives. You know, sometimes you know you do this cost benefit analysis. Sometimes yeah. you know you do things because they're right. You know, sometimes yeah. there's all, and it's very case dependent. And the world's complicated. Yeah, and we end up using them all in mm. all these different cases. I think I'm also biased in favor of utilitarianism because it's fun to figure out utilitarian justifications for the rules I already had. But the utilitarianism isn't the cause of the rules, except maybe in a very loose cultural evolutionary sense. Right. I think that makes sense. I'm just noodling on that. Yeah. I really like the... I was listening to one of these with my dad, and... uh, I really like the pauses to think. You yeah. don't hear a lot of that, and it, it's it's good to listen to. I mean, sometimes a listener needs the pauses to think. Yeah, to actually consume, like, yeah. especially when things are high density. Yeah. Um, so I guess getting, coming back to our original thought, just the this kind of divergence, this yeah. divergence between yeah. upper class, white America, and then, you know, lower class white America. Um, Just quantifying that, perhaps just to bring it full circle, you know, like marriage rates, you know, it used to be that everyone got married. Yes. Every, like, I mean, it's like, if you had a child, you went and you got married. Shotgun wedding, like this is what you did. Yes. Happened to a lot of people. Everyone did this. It's norm. Um, Exceptions are notable. Exceptions are notable. And disproportionately concentrated among people who are knowable for other reasons. Right. I, I noticed it reading about philosophers. Um, I forget exactly which period, but there there is some period where every knowable philosopher you read about never married, and that was very odd, and people talked about it. Right. Um, I don't know if that... I'm not really suggesting a deep connection. I would right. guess that... Um, if you're wired differently than the surrounding culture, you have to do some of your own thinking and that builds some good habits maybe. Right. Do you, um, Murray seems convinced of this. I think I'm convinced of this, but I don't have, I haven't articulated well. So I want to, I want to throw this out there and maybe we can, maybe we can sort this out. I'm honored. Marriage as a social institution. Yeah. Do you think it's as important as Murray says it is? I think it solves some problems that desperately need solving. I guess I'm not all the way convinced that the solution is unique, but having a, I'm not convinced that it's not unique either. One thing I like about you is I can relate uncertainty without it being taken as like active suspicion. Right. 
figuring out that there was no other way to achieve that seems like it would take a really a lot of thought but um i don't have another way in mind right and, and what are some of those things you think is it like some long-term expectation like so you can play like some repeated game uh well it does several the things um i'm gonna start with probably not the most important one but the easiest to articulate yeah. in keeping with our theme nice exactly <laughs> that it, um, we do what we can here keeps people from unilaterally altering the contract after other people have paid sunk costs that um if you take a job and move to a new city and get a new apartment um Maybe six months later, uh, the people who hired you say, well, if you were willing to do it for $200,000 a year before, now that you've paid all these costs that you can't get back, you'd surely be willing to do it for $50,000. <laughs> and, you know, humans have a evolutionary, I think, uh, instinct to say no and fuck you. Right, exactly. It's the uh, dictator game. Which, right. Helps us in repeated games. Marriage um, locks down, sort of freezes the uh, commitment that keeps people from trying to alter it for their own advantage, which in turn keeps us from having to um, pay the costs of people trying to alter it. Sort of like uh, private property is economically, punishing thieves is economically efficient because uh Working as a thief is still work, and the net profit is just a transfer, and we don't want people – I hear that from David Friedman, that uh, at first glance it seems like stealing isn't necessarily economically inefficient because you're just transferring stuff. And right. then it turns out that we want to disincentivize thieves from going to the effort of stealing stuff right. because – so similarly, uh, we want to disincentivize. You know, when you're in a relationship and you're trying to figure out what you can get and push that to the limit, it's a very different mentality. Yeah. I think it's not a very pleasant mentality of being. Um, right. And it's costly. Uh, it also solves some evolutionary stuff um, because of what we're sort of – I also got this from David Friedman that – um. Basically, uh, sleeping around and hypergamy. That uh, having a lot of partners. Yeah. Uh, also, um, for men having a lot of partners, for women trading up for someone higher status. Um, I think I'm representing Friedman accurately here, and I'm pretty confident he wouldn't be. I'm not badly wrong enough that he'd be offended. Um, that. Men and women, on average, as groups, uh, defect in different ways. Um, that the shape of, not necessarily what we want, but what we want when we're wanting the wrong thing is mismatched. And it's mismatched in a way that um, creates some problems with respect to time. Uh, sometimes... Uh, a man trades up for a younger model. Sometimes a woman trades up for someone with more status. These are all, you know, generalizations. Yeah. And they're all 
you know, how weak those are when it comes to individuals, but it also, you know, if you really look at the evolutionary stuff, it's hard to see how there wouldn't be some of that happening. Yeah. Um, some marriages also sort of brace against that. Uh, if you marry a girl when she's 20, uh, the marriage is a way that she can be confident that you're not going to dump her when she's 40. Right. And David Friedman talks about uh, the rings, the diamonds, and how those uh, sort of came into existence as a social custom, as a bond to uh, a sort of security deposit that you weren't going to engage in theft of virginity. Right. Uh, (laughs) So, so uh, she can go keep the ring and go and go sell it, and yeah, uh, that <laughs> worse comes damages worse. her dating market value if you don't want to stay with her, right? And like all signaling things, you sort of you wish there was a way to do that without having to spend a lot of money on the hunk of stone that you know right. costly signaling, right? But sometimes there isn't. Yeah, it's the best we can do. So, marriage. Uh, also, the kids. I yeah. mean, Murray gets into that. The uh, parents who are married seem to have the best results in terms of their kids staying out of prison and yeah. not getting a drug habit and yeah. not suffering a number of other legible bad fates. Right. Um, there's a lot of evidence for that, and you have to figure it's pretty significant because we all— st- start as kids. I mean, the number of affected people is just huge. Right. And I I guess when I think through why that, why that might be, it might be good in that respect with something like, well, yeah, there's two people who are, you know, they're kind of locked together. Yeah. And they've got this like, and and it's protecting their downside. Yes. In some sense that, you know, you know, your, your wife's not going to try and leave you for yes. some higher status person yes. and you're and your wife protected because as she gets older you know she's not gonna you're not gonna go leave her for some younger lady or something yeah. like that and this is a heterosexual Fr- case but friedman see i'm not relaying it very well friedman phrased it in terms of male peak performance and female peak performance on the dating market are uh asymmetrically timed ah interesting Men value youth that's early in the relation again yeah. generalization but, yeah. and women value status and financial success which tend to take time to acquire right and so you have people who uh whose value on the dang market is going to fluctuate and who are going to, the man is going to gain more opportunities. The woman is going to lose more opportunities. Uh, this fits pretty well the cultural wisdom of, you know, you knock a woman up and leave her, you know, damaged or whatever. I used to be yeah. really puzzled by that because, you know, why is she damaged? Does Yeah, it does make sense. But, uh, it makes some sense some sense now there was something else and it seemed it alters oh right uh murray um establishes that you don't get the same benefits to the children with parents who are merely cohabiting but i thought he didn't go into that enough 
Yeah, he didn't spend enough time. Uh, it it could really just be a selection effect. Right. I'm not saying I think it is, but um, you know, who decides to get married is non-random. Yeah. So I think Scott had a metaphor at one point about something, something uh, completely else, but uh, good metaphors get where he said um, he was talking about. AA, and he said, imagine the alternate world where it doesn't work at all. It doesn't help at all, but it's the conventional wisdom that if you're really serious about quitting drinking, you'll go to AA. We will see that people who go to AA are much more likely to quit drinking than people who don't, because right. anyone who is very serious about it will do this useless thing. Right. Um, similarly, I can't believe that selection effects aren't part of what's going on here. Right. Uh, I would be surprised if they were all of what's going on here. Yeah. And I, I think I think it's probably, if I had to guess, selection effects. And then it's the fact you kind of like, it, it produces this longer term orientation. Yeah. Uh, it really, it alters the mentality. Yeah. In a way that, you know, you can do stuff. Yeah. It couldn't do with the other mentality. Yeah. It, it almost gives you some slack, right? You know? Yeah. When you're not just optimizing for the short term all the time. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. It gives you some slack. It means you don't have to hit the legible metrics. You can experiment more. Right. Thinking of Zvi's stuff about moral mazes. I'm not used to thinking of marriages as moral <laughs> mazes, but. <laughs> it can't be a moral maze. Yeah. <laughs> There's been this big decline in this institution and and one of the things out of the book i found is uh i wish i had the statistic in front of me but it was uh divorce rates mm. among you know quote unquote upper class whites yeah. just like astronomically lower yeah. like you know they're like oh half of the people get divorced but like among you know let the leftist you know yeah. tanky say what are they the professional managerial class yeah. you know uh however you want to put this um it's just much lower. Yes. I've seen that statistic, too. Or I've seen a statistic that produced the same reaction, so I'm guessing it's the same statistic. Yeah. Maybe it was 20%. Yeah. It's like, it's a big swing. Yeah. A big swing. Pretty weird. It's partly why Murray has it formatted in terms of what the upper class say and what the upper class do. Right. Oh. So they do, so they say... So what do they say? Uh, I'm thinking of, I heard someone on the internet, um, someone sort of disreputable in some other contexts, so I'm not gonna, but who sometimes had some guy ideas. Uh, but I didn't completely trust him, so I was, I remember he made the point that um, he refactored the sexual revolution as high IQ people who can handle that um, gutting the institutions that low IQ people use to get by. <laughs> that um, if you have a 130 IQ uh, and you are a stable, professional, managerial type person, polyamory is probably fine for you. You probably make it work. Really bad if it becomes a norm because uh, if it becomes a normal thing because most people are not going to be able to make it work. Right. Um, although that does raise the question of whether, you know, the uh, 
in-group siloing might actually be, I'm not sure good in this instance, but good uh, theoretically. Um, if we have a way to signal these are the people who can make polyamory work um, and the signal was reasonably accurate, we might be able to have different sets of norms. Right. I'm libertarian enough that it makes me sad to think that there might be people who are better off being polyamorous who don't get to do that because most people can't handle being polyamorous. Right. That kind of sucks. Yeah, it makes me sad. I would like to find a way around that if I could. People kind of do what they want. Yeah. Okay. So that is interesting. And I wonder how that feels. The guy I was reading was, you know, a very right wing and very conflict theorist. And he was framing it as sort of maybe not quite deliberate sabotage, but something like that. <laughs> and I wonder, I don't think it's that. So I wonder how it feels if the behaviors you actually use, uh, the code you follow in your actions is very sort of conservative and traditional. Yes. Um, and your stated doctrines are very radical. Uh, I just wonder, does it feel like... Um, at each point, the traditional thing is just the thing that makes sense, but you don't generalize it to other people? Or do you think that you're in special circumstances, but other people aren't? Or are you communicating at a high simulacra level? So when you say the radical stuff, do you process that as a coalitional signal rather than a... just wonder... It's probably that, right? Yeah. The, probably the last one a lot, and then all the other ones as well. Yeah. Yeah, it's just weird. It's like, so, you know, upper-class whites, wealthier than they ever have been, you know, they get married, similar rights to that they did in, in 1960. A lot of parental investment in their kids. You know, they go to church a lot. They, you know, surprise, you know, like, you know, they're involved in their communities. Their PTAs are quite vibrant. There's all these things. You know, th th there's not the drug and alcohol problems um, that exist in, in with lower-class whites and, it's weird, right? Yeah. Like, like, so it, like, there's all these really socially conservative practices. Yeah. But there's no expectation that anyone lives up to that. Yeah. Or like, you would never advertise it. Like, like to think like I remember there's cover of Newsweek. I used to read Newsweek when it was still a magazine when I was like you know in yeah. high school and you know it's like you know it was something about you know how marriage wasn't really important or something yeah. like we, we shouldn't, we shouldn't imprint like family values or something like yeah. that. But upper class whites are incredibly into family values. Yeah. Like this is their thing, man. Yeah. But they don't want anyone else to have to follow it, which I think is in some sense is, is good not to trap people. Right. Yeah. But then again, there is a strong norm. It's like a silent norm, right? <laughs> you can't talk about it. It's so weird. It's so weird. That's a good candidate for, if we're doing, I always forget, it's hamartiology. If we're looking for the place where evil enters the world, my guess is that it will have something to do with the can't talk about it thing. Not because talking about things automatically makes everything better, but because that kind of sort of cone of silence tends to systematically make things worse. Yes. Um, 
or even at some level, if you can't identify, correctly identify what's going on, you can never have any nope. hope of fixing it. Can't think in public. Uh, can't speak in public. Uh, Kantorovics get, write their nice letters to Stalin and get shipped off. Yep. I mean, he didn't, but somebody hid the letter. Yeah. Which in turn means you don't get the Kantorovics, who are socially clueless, but oftentimes not clueless about our stuff. Right. And it's all real problem now. I see, because, you know, all these things are right-affiliated. Yeah. And most upper-class upper, upper whites are, you know, you know, center-left, you know. I read this blogger saying, uh, we have to credit Joe Biden with the vaccine, because if Trump had won re-election, he would have endorsed the vaccine, and that would have meant that we wouldn't be able to use it. <laughs> It would be too dangerous. <laughs> it would be too dangerous. You know, Cuomo, Cuomo talked about that quite a bit. You know, this is the Trump vaccine. You know, they, they rushed it through. There's no way we can trust it. Yes. Now that's flipped around. You know, now now the uh, far right won't take the vaccines. It's quite quite entertaining. Oh. Scary, but entertaining. All that. Some level. I'm learning from it. So that's a good sign. Yeah. I agree it's scary. Uh, I do think I'm starting to maybe get a handle on it. And that's an anti-scary feeling. That's good. It's less confusing. What I do worry is, you know, without kind of radical action advancement on the technology front, you know, if we and if we continue to have like really sluggish, stagnant growth, yeah. you know, maybe it's a little bit, but not that much, or, or maybe there's even zero, in worst case, or, or negative. Um, you know, it makes the political much more important because it's divvying up what's yeah. left. And then these things get even worse. Yeah. And you, you can't, you know, you can't have someone on the left side, you know, family values are really important. And like, we want everyone to get married. And like, you know, like, you, know you just can't, you can't do that. No. And shifts people into that mentality suited to zero sum conflicts which yeah. is a very bad thing if you want to get out of the overall situation. Right. I think Brett Weinstein has said some stuff about the Nazis and that being downstream of the fact that they were seeing economic contraction. Uh, and he thinks there might be an evolutionary program to look for other groups and take their stuff when you're seeing economic contraction. Because that's the only real option, or it's a it's a. We think it's the only. Yep. Yeah, right. Exactly. It's it's a very very legible option. Yeah. Right. In the ancestral environment, it would have been. Right. So that part is really scary. Huh? The stuff with the vaccine is the anti-vaxxers. That's less. It's less scary to me because it's hard to take them seriously. Uh, I see them as functioning at a high simulacra level rather than modeling physical reality. That's going to work out bad for them in situations where physical reality matters, but it also feels like it should limit their ability to directly hurt me and the people I care about. Right. But perhaps it's a testament to how, uh, I'm not sure about this word, but 
how virtual the political fight has yeah. gotten in some sense. You know, it's like really not real at all. Yeah. It's all on Twitter. And so it almost feels like, the, the, you know, the anti-vaxxers, they, they can't even get past the fact that like, like this could be in the physical like environment, right? Yeah. Like this could be the real thing in the real world. Yeah. Because everything, everything else is operating on that just kind of almost imaginary level where yeah. simulacra level. I remember... See, I don't know, that could just be reiterating what you just said, or this might be obvious, but it clicked something for me. Um, the comment section at Slate Star Codex, uh, somebody made a bad argument that we didn't need to worry about AI again, and Scott took yeah. it apart into little tiny pieces again. Uh, the last of those he posted, uh, I think it was actually titled, Contra Ace McGlue, oh no, God, are we doing this again? <laughs> yeah. Um, which is not to, I think we, I have the idea that we might disagree about that. So I want to, you know, specify that the fact that those people are making bad arguments isn't even evidence that there aren't good arguments. I'm not saying they were right. making bad arguments because they were arguing against them, saying they were, yeah. you know. Uh, and someone on the comment section said, well, they're humanities people. Think about it. Look at AI. Uh, you know, it's huge. It's civilization altering. It's very abstract. You know, yeah. It's just obviously symbolic. You don't need to say it's symbolic. They right. process it like they would a literary trope yeah. because it's so obviously the stuff that literary tropes are made of. Right. And it doesn't occur to them to think, wait, do the actual laws of physics less do that? Right. <laughs> exactly. And I think that was what was happening. And I think I see it happening in other areas. Uh, maybe just going over simulacra levels again. Yeah. And at, you mentioned this just a while ago, but at, at perhaps the very real level with AI risk, I am, I, I do think AI risk is a, is a very important question to be worried about, concerned yeah. about. Um, I think I think it gets more airtime than other X risks. Yeah. Which is somewhat and I wonder if that's just because there's a lot of computer science people or yeah. something. Uh, and that's their area. And I also think I so it's weird, right? I'm not worried about AI I, well, I'm much less worried about AI taking our jobs than I am AI killing us. Same. Strong <laughs> agreement. But I'm also worried about, you know, damping progress because we're worried about AI risk. Yes. When in, in it, when it's one of the few areas where we can still do anything. Yes, you know? I got that, and I can ab- I can uncaveatedly affirm that there's a legitimate thing to worry about. Yeah, I mean, if it turns out that we ought to have stalled progress, that doesn't get us out of that downside. Right. Yeah, I, I would worry about that a lot, and definitely more worried about killing us than I am at taking our jobs. And I do um. Like, if I contrast it with, my brain is pretty min-maxed. There's stuff I'm very good at and stuff I'm very bad at. Mine too. (laughs) Um, The climate science stuff is, I always feel like it's chemistry. It's oriented towards some aspect that I really, really suck at. Yeah. I have very little ability to evaluate those 
arguments themselves. Yeah. Uh, gases and my brain doesn't do that well. It does do the stuff relating to AI well, so I tend to focus more on that because I can actually have non-male level ideas about it. Yeah. Uh, and that holds, I think, also for viruses and also for uh, really a lot of X risk. Right. Uh, my brain does philosophy of science really well. It does epistemology really well. It doesn't usually do actual scientific content really well. Right. Like earth science or. Yeah. So definitely, you know, disproportionate focus there. Um, and we've also, I just look at, say, we talked about cowboys earlier. Yeah. And, you know, when we tested one of the first uh, atomic bombs, you know, the physicists that were working on it, and, you know, they're really smart people, but they believed there was some percentage chance that when they tested it, it would light the atmosphere on fire yeah. and kill everyone. Yeah. And they, like, weren't sure. And they still did it. Yeah. Oh, man. I don't know. And that's probably not a good attitude. Like, like... <laughs> The question is, with all these things, it's like, what is the acceptable level of risk? I wonder. Um, see, my brain generates an explanation for that. I don't want to uncritically endorse it. but Yeah. My dad uh, knew this guy. I think it was when he was in the National Guard. It may have been after he was in the National Guard and the guy was also... Uh, in the military. Yeah. Uh, not the, He was in the National Guard, so they wouldn't send him to Vietnam. Huh? Nice. This guy was in the actual military, and my dad talked, knew some stuff about his background, and he talked about the juxtaposition between... This guy was very fearless in terms of, you know, charging enemy machine gun people. Oh, yeah? And he was utterly incapable of saying no to anyone in authority. Oh, Yeah. Uh, and those were all sort of orthogonal. Um, yeah, very strong need for approval. Uh, so the thing I would wonder about with the scientists is, you know, maybe it was just too awkward for them not to do it. I mean, yeah. Oh yeah. Do we think that's a trade-off they actually decided to make, or as opposed to they should have? I'm wondering if they weren't bowing to social incentives rather than bravely experimenting. I would not have this worry if there were one scientist working alone in a lab. Right. I think, you know, it's probably some calculus where you look at it and you're like, well, we don't think the risk is that high. Hmm. And there's immense social pressure because, you know, the army brought us to New Mexico and they Hmm. got us and our families in these barracks and, you know, General Groves is like, he wants the bomb now, you know, to end this war. And and you just calculate that all together and like, okay, like we have to do this. I don't know. My brain thinks that's more likely than them deciding it was okay that there was a 5% chance of right. lighting the atmosphere on fire. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think that perhaps a better explanation. It's quite interesting. Yeah. A lot of layers to it. A lot of layers to it. Well, Gwen, we've covered quite a lot today. We have. I think this was a good one. Yeah, I think we got a lot of productive ground. I learned a lot. Me too. Any other closing thoughts you can think of before? 
I don't think so. I never have closing thoughts like ready. Yeah. But I think um, if I had to sum it up, in some real way, things have gotten worse or have not really gotten better for some people. And um, we should think about what we can do to mitigate that or. Yeah. Well, one more thought for you. Do you think things being flat is a good in themselves? Good in itself. Like, so things being flat is in like, you know, having moderate distance between, you know, someone who just, you know, works in retail and, and Jeff Bezos. Do you think there's some good in that? Um, those are two different questions. Uh, I think there are some people who think it's good in itself and yeah. not one of those people. I think there are sometimes maybe even often utilitarian type reasons why it's instrumentally good and um, like diminishing marginal utility of money, for instance, right. uh, which provides some historical context for where the instinct came from. Right. Um, I'm not dismissing it because all our instincts come from yeah. something like that. Um, but no, I I was trying to figure out how I condense my politics to explain it to people at college. I used to say uh, I was anti-poverty but not anti-inequality. So potentially open to taking away rich people's money to give it to poor people, but very uninterested in taking it away to chuck it into a hole in the ground. Right. And I think that is a difference in perspective because I think for some people taking away from the rich people is not a um, – it doesn't go on the con side of the ledger. It's right. not a price you pay to do something else. Um, but I could definitely be convinced instrumentally and I might have to accept that if our people have strong enough egalitarian impulses, then they may be experiencing enough suffering that I'm utilitarian enough that I have to sort of bow that, but I'm not sure yet. And I'm not um, I'm using utilitarian as a adjective, uh, never identified as one. Right. Um, because I don't buy all the bullets. Yeah. Uh, I will say this. I have this moral intuition. Yeah. So like the so the nicest car you can get in inflation adjusted terms in the US, like essentially the nicest car you could reasonably get, um, was forty seven thousand dollars, forty seven thousand five hundred dollars, like some Cadillac or something like that. And I God, I don't know. Perhaps it's some like Quaker background or something, but I do have this preference for like ostentatious displays of wealth and things like that. I think are not good for oh, anyone. If that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, I'm on board you know with it? that. I I have multiple justifications for why those are not good. Uh, they're often I don't want to say explicitly, but not too implicitly, a deliberate attempt to incite envy or create. Right. Yeah. Like I think know, that's just kind of so wrong. So that falls some, under people trying to hurt other people. Yeah. Exactly. That, <laughs> I very much feel that. Right. And the baseline is sort of you know that it's costly. Even if you don't have that, it's costly signaling that's not going to value. Uh, a lot of the times uh, when I think about inequality um, and I think about not being opposed to it, I think in terms of maybe there's someone who really needs that car. I can't think why that would be, but 
my imagination is very limited. Um, so that's the argument I go to. Um, kind of like plastic straws, right? What? It's like the plastic straw. Oh, yeah, straw, exactly. You know, like, like I was maybe just, just like really, really. No, the uh, conspicuous consumption stuff is socially negative sum. Uh, it would be socially negative sum even if people's uh, weren't optimizing to cause negative emotional consequences in our people. It's one thing to sort of shrug off those consequences when they aren't deliberately intended. It's another thing when they're the whole point and the behavior doesn't make any sense without them. Yeah. Uh, no, I'm definitely with you there. Gotcha. And that's kind of, it, that is separate. That's uh, it's separate from the inequality question, I think. Yeah. I think, I think it is separate. I think some people, again, this is, it's propaganda. It's the propaganda you use on yourself. So yeah. it's not necessarily dishonest propaganda. But Bertrand Russell, that same essay where he's talking about motivations, he starts with acquisitiveness. And his stock example of acquisitiveness is to... See, I'm forgetting the name of the country. Um, Middle Eastern, I'm pretty sure. Uh, little girls who came to live with his family uh, when he was a teenager. Yeah. And they had almost starved. And with his family, they obviously had enough to eat. But they spent all their time stealing fruit from the surrounding farms and burying it. Because, anyway, that is the, um, to incite, uh, Sympathy for people who really want a lot of money. I think he explicitly uses that to set up why someone thinks they need $10 billion. I'm yeah. sure it's not the only reason, but and I'm not even sure it's the most common reason. Right. And he says stronger than acquisitiveness is rivalry and brings up a lot of examples of people hurting themselves to hurt their rivals more. Oh, and nice. then he says love of glory tends to be a little stronger than rivalry, but it's hard. And love of power is rarer than love of glory, but it's much stronger in the people who have it. And it has an outside historical impact because people who love power tend to end up with a lot of power. Yeah. It was a good essay. It's a great essay. I, I got to read it. I'll send it to you. Yeah, that'll be good. I always wish I had a solution and of these. Yeah, I, I, we always end up with more questions. But, you know, perhaps, you know, describing the problem as best we can is yeah. the, it's the beginning. Scratches my itch for meaning. Absolutely. In good company. Yeah, definitely. That's great. Well, Quinn, thanks for coming on. Thank you. We'll do it again soon. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with a new episode of Narratives.